This is episode 70 of No Truce Bar, the second hand. This episode is a part two to episode 68, Smoke Sesh. In this particular episode, I discuss the other ramifications of the war on drugs, the black family, and the importance on a mental health level of studying the benefits of plant medicines. Definitely check out this episode. Listen, like, comment, and share. Thank you. Take care. Peace. to a brand new episode of No Troops Barred, the best up-and-coming podcast on the internet, and I'm your host, Hoikuweku Timmons, and if you've missed any of the previous 69 episodes, those episodes are available on SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, and Google Podcasts, and I want to apologize for last week because there were some issues involving the video quality and the sound quality as it relates to episode 69. So that particular episode is available, but you can only get that episode on Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcasts because the video was just not up to my standards as far as quality goes. So that's why I decided not to put the video up for episode 69. But anyway, episode 69 was a really great episode. It was related to the golden era. And I was talking about uh, specific years in hip hop as far as like 1988 goes uh, versus 1998. I also got into the discussion about there being a GOAT. I made my predictions or GOAT, excuse me, is an acronym for greatest of all time when it comes to hip hop. I also made my prediction for the locks versus dipset battle. So if you get a chance, go back and check out episode 69. I might try to put the audio up on YouTube, but at this moment, it's available there. So if you're looking around like, hey, where's episode 69? Uh, that's where it is. Also, I love to take the beginning of each episode to thank everybody who has provided uh, uh, any sort of support, who's clicked a like button, who's made a comment, who shared some of my content with any of their friends or family. I deeply appreciate it. Uh, the No Truths Bar platform is a really small platform, and I work really hard to, to, to grow it and to make it one of the best podcasts out there. And so No Truths Bar, it provides a... a a, a way to disseminate information. I, I try to have like really astute people on and I have some really dope guests coming up in the fall as well. So make sure you stay tuned. And uh, once again, thank you guys for all of the support. Thank you for people that have listened. Uh, thank you to all of the guests. I want to thank everybody who's ever been on my platform. Uh, I, I thank you for coming on. I thank you for taking time out of your schedule to come and have discourse with me. Uh, regardless of what the topic was. So uh, definitely thank you guys for that. Now, uh, I want to jump into this particular episode. Sorry, I need to get a little water. But I want to jump into this particular episode. This is episode 70, the second hand. I was going to call it secondhand smoke because this episode is actually a follow-up to episode 68, which was the smoke sesh. Now, what I did in episode 68 was that I wanted to take a historical look 
at cannabis usage. I also wanted to take a historical look at the usage of uh, other forms of plant medicine or psychedelics in history. So what I want to put out there, the caveat, is that I did not do that episode to encourage people to use cannabis. I did not do that episode to encourage people to try psychedelics. I am not a physician or a doctor. I cannot really guide you on that particular thing um, as what you may need to take. But what I do want to encourage is for you to have an open mind. What I would like to encourage and what I hope I encourage with with episode 68 is that you went and you did your own research and you didn't just accept the propaganda that was spewed to you via uh you know people like Nancy Reagan and other and others who uh had a vested interest in demonizing these substances in juxtaposition with alcohol and tobacco and that was the whole impetus for episode 68 with the smoke sesh and as i thought about it and as i was actually recording episode 68 there were like a few things that i omitted that i really felt i needed to touch on there were a few things that i omitted that were definitely relevant to the conversation as far as uh, cannabis use, as far as uh, other plant medicines as well, that I didn't really have the time to go into. So I want to kind of quickly do uh, the secondhand uh, episode or secondhand smoke, but we're just going to call it the secondhand. I want to do this episode to kind of go into uh, a little bit more of some of the more nefarious impacts of the war on drugs, if you will. And, you know, we have these conversations a lot about mass incarceration. We have these conversations a lot about the Iran-Contra scandal uh, involving Oliver North. You know, so there's been many documentaries that not only look at the war on drugs domestically, but then we have to get into the conversation of the global trade as well. You have to get into the conversation of uh, uh, our occupancy of, of, of Afghanistan, excuse me, and, you know, just the lucrative trade and opium poppy. You know, these things have a, a certain synergy and they're interconnected. And what I always do with each episode, I love a nuanced argument. I don't like blanket generalizations about these particular topics because when you start to discuss the war on drugs domestically and then on an international stage, you have to have a very nuanced look because you can't just say, this one particular agency supported or did not support that because you have individuals that can act in their own interests. You have various other uh, factors going on that if you don't do the research, you kind of really don't know about. And so I want to take this particular episode and, and, and touch on that. But when we look at mass incarceration, mass incarceration is a product of the war on drugs. And Mass incarceration also is an extension of chattel slavery that went on in this country from uh, really like about the 1640s, 1650s, all the way up through 1865 with the passing of the 13th Amendment. And what I want to look at here is the fact that we can't just look at the war on drugs as strictly monetary. We can't look at the war on drugs as solely being oriented around profit. There is a race issue here. There is a race component. There's a component of xenophobia. There's also a component of the continuation 
of chattel slavery that was preponderant in this country and really facilitated the conditions that produced the Industrial Revolution. So a lot of people, when they talk about the slave trade in the United States, they don't want to talk about the fact that the wealth that was extrapolated from a black labor in this country of finance, a lot of the things that credited the uh, Industrial Revolution. So you look at someone like James Watt. So whenever you mention James Watt, we always think about the steam engine. That's kind of like the big thing. Like kind of like when you think about World War One, you think about the assassination of Archduke uh, Ferdinand by the Black Hand, and that's kind of that thing. But there's a lot more going on. And so when you think about when you think about uh, uh, slavery, you you kind of don't see the continuation of it. We don't really emphasize the continuation of slavery. Um, and, you know, the war on drugs is, is definitely something that evolved out of that sort of turpitude that we had in this particular country. And what I want to say is that the wealth from slavery, and even if you look at the Caribbean, you look at the islands in the Caribbean, you know, you look at uh, things like rum, uh, white gold, which is sugar, you know, Virginia had brown gold because, you know, before, uh, uh, Virginia started to really kind of become that engine for tobacco, it was Barbados. So a lot of those farmers actually came and settled in the Carolinas, but Virginia uh, produced a, a lot of wealth, uh, for Europe via brown gold, tobacco, uh, all of these items were, 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 were directly connected to the preponderance and the growth of cities like London Amsterdam, if you look at Wall Street, how it started, a lot of those firms got their fucking, pardon me, I'm getting getting passionate, but a lot of those firms actually got their start financing slave ships and insuring plantations and slave owners. So we cannot act like the wealth of this country and a lot of Western countries is is, uh, diametrically opposed to the slave trade. So let's think about the peculiar institution. I know many of us have heard that term, the peculiar institution. So you have to look at Senator John C. Calhoun, who came up with that particular term. The peculiar institution is the modus operandi for aggrandizing wealth here in North America via plantations in the South, And also you have to look at the fact that Northern cities benefited from the wealth that was produced on Southern plantations in in the Southern part of this country. And so sometimes in the media, what we like to do is that we like to kind of uh, glorify the North and the North was the place to go, you know, the great migration. But, you know, that's not necessarily the case. And it's actually true. New Jersey had one of the largest lynching rates in uh, the mid the mid to late 1800s, just as much as Georgia, more than Virginia. You also have to look at how black people were treated in these northern cities when they went there, when they went to the New Yorks, when they went to the Bostons and, 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 and the Chicagos and all of these places. They weren't going there and necessarily living it up. They were treated and they were living in abysmal living conditions. But we kind of have this narrative of the North being the place to go, and then the South is just uh, 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 synonymous with everything oppressive that was done to black people and African Americans. So when you look at the peculiar institution, 
which is slavery. And that was kind of like a nice way to dress up exactly what it is, is that it was directly connected to the wealth in the South. On the eve of the Civil War, the richest people in this country were located in the lower Mississippi, lower Mississippi Valley. On the eve of the Civil War, the richest people in this country were located in the lower Mississippi Valley. Uh, economists have estimated that uh, on the eve of the Civil War, the worth of the labor that was produced by enslaved Africans was around $3.5 billion. This is huge. And we have to acknowledge that. And, and I'm, I'm going back this far because it definitely correlates with the current condition of mass incarceration. And so we have to start there and, and, and to see that there's a continuum here that was never broken. And as I said earlier, the slave trade was extremely lucrative. So when people try to argue, like, for example, some of these indigenous people, there are, there are and, and for those of you that don't know, there happen to be a lot of black people that have come out and they even have like a plethora of research by certain scholars, uh, certain pseudo scholars, if you will, to try to argue the fact that black people in the United States are not actually African and black people in the United States are indigenous, and we come from these various indigenous tribes, which isn't true because there were many tribes, like you know, here in Virginia, uh, 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 parts of the South, uh, in the Midwest, that went to great lengths to define themselves as being different from black people. But that's a different topic in itself. But when you look at, pardon me, when you look at the fact that, uh, 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 a lot of these arguments really kind of spring up. They're not really based on anything factual. So when you look at the fact that people say, oh, you know, we're indigenous, we're not of African descent, it just doesn't support that because, well, excuse me, history doesn't support that because you have people like William Byrd II. If you don't know who that is, definitely research him. Uh, we have a park here in Richmond called Bird Park, and it's named after William Bird. It's named after that family. That family insured slave ships. You had things like the Zong atrocity that happened where a captain uh, threw, uh, I believe it was anywhere from about 150 to 200 enslaved Africans overboard to a collect insurance money. You had dry goods shops here in Shaco Bottom like Tall Hammers that made money off of the slave trade. You have companies like New York Life, AIG, and Aetna, these, these huge multi-billion dollar insurance companies that exist now, they got their start off of insuring uh, uh, slave owners, so if one of their slaves ran away, got injured, died, they collect insurance money on that particular slave. So not only do you have to look at the plantation, not only do you have to look at the particular slave owner, you also have to look at all of the ancillary companies that were able to spring up and also create value and wealth off of the slave trade. It reminds me of, if you've ever seen this documentary, it's a really cool documentary, and it's called uh, Cocaine Cowboys. Cocaine Cowboys is like one of my favorite documentaries, 
And it's about the, uh, the, the, the explosion of cocaine, especially in Miami in the early 1980s. And one of the things they, they point out, and I find it akin to the slave trade, and you can actually go to Africa as well, because when you start to see uh, uh, different European groups that got permission from African kingdoms because they had to negotiate those slave ports uh, uh, with these various kingdoms around these different parts of uh, the Windward Coast, or if you're talking about the Gold Coast, or if you're talking about uh, around the Senegambia, and they couldn't just take those spots because there were times where uh, those different slave castles were taken for ransom by these African kingdoms, and they had to, these European powers or, or, or uh, groups were had to acquiesce to these different kingdoms, but that's a different story. But I love Cocaine Cowboys because one of the things they pointed out in that film is that when cocaine became preponderant in uh, Miami, what you started to see was an upsurge in banks. So a lot of banks, uh, a lot of banks began to, to form uh, uh, in Miami because of the drug trade. A lot of people, uh, uh, Rolex, uh, luxury car dealerships, all of these kind of ancillary entities begin to spring up to siphon from and develop a parasitic relationship with the drug trade. Uh, there was a part in the film where they said that there was a graduating class, I believe it was 1982, of a police academy, and out of that class, everybody either was arrested because they, were ha they had involvement in the cocaine trade in Miami, or they got killed because they have involvement in the cocaine trade in Miami. And so I want to point out uh, a more recent example to show you the fact that slavery just wasn't monetary for people that were directly involved in the slave trade. It was also uh, lucrative for people that were able to kind of uh, develop other businesses that were, were able to benefit from the slave trade as well. And so we have to look at it from that way. And I'm, I'm doing all of this to make a point is that chattel slavery not only produced wealth for those directly involved, but for those that could, you know, if you made, you make manacles or if you, uh, you design ships or if you insure uh, uh, ships, if you insure plantations, if you, uh, work along or near nearby plantations, or for example, here in Richmond or Virginia, rather, you had uh, enslaved people that were able to hire out their labor, uh, the owner of that particular individual take a piece. Um, you also have people like yeoman farmers that may hire a slave to come in, or maybe they may have one or two at most. We also forget that in order to actually own a human being that happened to be enslaved, in order for you to do that, you had to be extremely wealthy. This was not something that any and everybody could get into. So when you talk to a lot of racist uh, white people, and once again, this channel, this podcast does not endorse racism. I do not subscribe to the belief that there's anything that makes anyone innately better on a physical level or intellectual level uh, uh, against another group just based off of phenotype. Or genotype, even. Oh, there have been people that have tried to argue that with stuff like, you know, the bell curve and all that, you know, whoop de whoop. But I don't subscribe to that. So I always want to put that out there um, that I don't. But there are races, um, there have been racist white people and others that uh, what they will try to say is 
is that you know um uh you know you, you we own your ancestors and actually I, I i encountered a racist a few years ago and he made that particular argument like we own your ancestors but the reality is is that most uh most people of european descent in this country would have came from the people that were living in penury uh, surplus, surplus labor, vagrants, people that in England where they had to create vagrancy laws from. And that was one of the things about the Virginia colony is that Europe was trying to find a way to get rid of all this surplus labor, these vagrants, and get them out of England and over here to the, to uh, what would become the United States. So the Jamestown colony was actually filled up and constituted uh, the abundance of the lower classes of England. And what you see, uh, mostly most white people, like a lot of black people, would have came from people that were not part of the landed class. We, a lot of us would not have came from people that were part of the aristocracy. It's just not the truth. We would like to believe that, and a lot of racists would like to believe that, but that is not the truth. And this is why um, I'm going to do an episode the week after next, or so in two weeks, about Bacon's Rebellions. And Bacon's Rebellion is so important because... Uh, he, that rebellion showed that you had the lower classes of white folks and the lower classes of black folks coming together to try to overthrow the governor of the Virginia colony at that particular time. And that's what the reality of it is. So to own a slave was something that you actually had to have money to do. You just, not, not everybody had that. And then a lot of times uh, as well, when you look at the influx of, of European immigrants, a lot of them really didn't start to come until like the late, the mid to late 1700s. You know, this is when you start to get a lot of your Irish. This is when you start to get, uh, you know, your, some of your Italian immigrants. This is when you start to get um, uh, immigrants coming from other parts of Europe as well in your mid to late 1700s. And a lot of African and people and black folks would have already been in this country a lot, uh, far longer than the masses of of uh, European immigrants. And, and for example, here in Virginia, uh, people like uh, Thomas Jefferson uh, were really trying to figure out how to solve the problem of black of too many black people being in the state of Virginia. And that's why after 1808, Virginia became like an epicenter for, dis for distribution of black people throughout other parts of the South. We just had such a surplus of black people here in Virginia. And so I'm sorry, I just went on a tangent. But the thing is, let me get back to the point. The thing is, essentially, is that uh, the wealth of, of this country, it was drawn from slaves and, and the work and the labor that slaves uh, provided for this country. Ooh, sorry about that. Uh, hey, drink your water, kids, as well, for real. Um, but yeah. So it's all tied into a reason. So let's fast forward. We're going to jump through a lot here because I want to make a lot of these points and keep it moving. Let's get to 1865 and let's get to the 13th Amendment. But let's talk about the fact that if you were found, um, and I'm paraphrasing, I don't, I don't remember it verbatim, unfortunately. I used to remember these things verbatim, but now I don't remember them verbatim no more. But anyway, with the 13th Amendment, there is the loophole there that can facilitate one to fall back into conditions of slavery. 
So what do we start to get? Um, and this is something that people like Michelle Alexander so eloquently and brilliantly touched on. Uh, people like um, uh, Claude Anderson, Dr. Claude Anderson, Dr. Michelle Alexander, excuse me. They touched on a lot about these labor camps, labor camps that started to form after the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, after the, the Freedmen's Bureau were dispersed, you know, because they had certain obligations that they, they, they were supposed to do for enslaved Africans um, or newly freed Africans. These labor camps that started to form. Now, what began to happen is that these labor camps, these prison camps, uh, they worked people to exhaustion. They did. And another documentary I would like to recommend, uh, a, a, a heavy scholar, a profound brother, brilliant mind by the name of Dr. Sean Utsi. He's a professor at VCU. If you get a chance, please, please check out uh, some of his work. Check out his documentary. He did a, he did, he actually has two documentaries as well, but there's one documentary that he did. I'm trying to think of the name of it. I don't know if it's called I think it's called Until the Well Runs Dry. And in, in, in that documentary, Until the Well Runs Dry, Dr. Utsi talks about the fact that uh, it, uh, uh, the bodies of, of enslaved people, the dead bodies were actually used by VCU medical students. And that's just like one small piece of that documentary, but check that out. But I point it out for a reason. On these labor camps, and we also have to, to recognize this before I go forward. When you look at enslaved people, enslaved black people in this country, it wasn't just the labor. But like I said, there were ancillary things. And there were dark medical experiments performed on black people. There's a term called, called iatrophobia. It's I-A-O-T-R-O-P-H-O-B-I-A. And what it is, it's a Fear of doctors. It's a, a rational fear. But when you look at the fear that many of us have about going to the doctor, it can actually be justified almost. I know many people have heard this, but there was a gentleman by the name of J. Marion Sims. He's considered the father of modern gynecology. And what he would do is that he took enslaved African women and he would experiment on them. A lot of these women would die. A lot of these women became sterile. A lot of these women caught severe infections because of his crude methods that he's actually lauded for now as being the father of modern gynecology. So that's just one instance. You have people like Louis Agassiz, who was a professor at Harvard who came down and performed uh, experiments on African people, looked at African bodies uh, against uh, the, the, the will of many of these African people, amongst other experiments, and, and actually justified scientific racism. You know, you go to, the, to some of these Ivy League schools that were around in the 1700s and the 1800s, they had pseudosciences like phrenology, uh, studying the, uh, the morphology of the skulls of African people to find scientific ways to ossify the racism and, the, and, 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 and a natural, scientifically valid way to justify the, 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 uh, the inhumane treatment of black people and the fact that we were subhuman. So these were things that went on on an ancillary level that were directly drawn from the slave trade. And I want to mention that because also on these labor camps, when someone would die, their bodies could get donated to universities to be practiced upon. 
You have people that went missing and ended up in these labor camps. You have people that had uh, 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 crimes fabricated upon them, petty things like theft. Remember, you have people that were released from slavery that had nowhere to go, that were starving, that were basically roaming around. They didn't know where to go, so their only solution to try to survive was to steal, to eat what they could find, and they were, were, were thrown into these labor camps and basically put back into slavery. And once again, different entities in the United States were able to make millions of dollars. Many of the railroads that were built throughout this country that were uh, able to facilitate massive trade continentally were, were built and, and off of the labor, the free labor, off of these people that were in these labor camps that were there because they had fake false, erroneous charges that were put up against them, or even they were straight up kidnapped and thrown into these camps. And we have to remember that there's a continuum here. There's a continuum here. I'm doing this. I'm going this long-winded way because I'm making a, a, a point. There's a continuum here, right? Ooh, I need some more water. All right. Ugh. Pardon me. So... We have that happen. All right. Now, uh, a recap. What did we cover? Or what did I cover? What did we cover, right? We talked about slavery. We talked about surplus capital. We talked about the fact that a lot of insurance companies got their start from insuring uh, plantations and slaveholders and whatnot. So we spoke about that. We spoke about the 13th Amendment. We spoke about labor camps, okay? Follow me. So we're we're going we're going somewhere here. There's there's a there's a trajectory that I'm trying to take you guys on. So the enmity between the United States and black people never really evaporated. And one other point I want to make, one quick point I want to make, very quick point, and I want to get on, on track here because call me Tangent Timmons. That's going to be my new name now. I love to go on tangents. But one thing I want to point out is prior, uh, not even prior to, but this, is all, this was always a position held by Abraham Lincoln. Many times as black people, we want to revere Abraham Lincoln. I don't think we do that no more. And I don't think this country does it no more. I think we have a lot of information where we have a realistic view of Abraham Lincoln and that he was a politician acting in his times. He mentioned that if he could preserve the union and not free black people, he would do it. But also what Lincoln said is that he didn't believe that black people and white people could actually coexist in this society. And one of the things he actually suggested... <laughs> And thought about was uh, pushing black people, you know, once the Civil War was over, is actually pushing black people out to Haiti. That was one of the things that Abraham Lincoln actually tossed out there. So this guy was really not involved, uh, really not worried about the, uh, the edification of black people after slavery. And, 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 and slavery was actually a shot at the South's economy. That's really what it was about. It was taking out the South's economy because unlike the North, the North was a lot more industrialized because when you had the Civil War, whereas the North, the Union, the Union Army had several armories, the Southern Army really only had Tredegar Ironworks. So if you took that out, you know, you really hurt the South, really. So 
uh, there wasn't an emphasis on industrialization in the South because the South made so much money off of slavery. And the North did too. And I don't want to let them out of the, the framework here. But I just want to mention that to you guys really quick. But jumping ahead again, there was never an end but of, of, of the... Uh, of the enmity between what became the United States and black people in this country. It, it never was. So there never really was an end here. It truly wasn't. And we have to look at it. We have to look at it from, uh, from that perspective, you know? Um, so you did, you had a, you never had that enmity in between the United States and black America. So to jump forward, we get into mass incarceration. So I want to point out a guy by the name of Terrell Don Hudo. He's important because he was one of the founders of corrections, the Corrections Corporation of America. Now, why is that important? One of the founders of the Corrections Corporation of America, one of the things that uh, he did is that he actually ran a prison camp, which essentially was the same as plantation conditions it's called, it was called the Ramsey Prison Farm, and it was located, I think, in southeast Texas. Had uh, hundreds of inmates there. People died from exhaustion. They were worked to death. They were living in subhuman conditions in, these, in, in this sort of prison camp. And so one of the founders of, of Corrections Corporation of America was directly involved, essentially, in slavery. So you're seeing the continuity here. We're, we're, we're going from... The domestic slave trade, we're going to the labor camps, and then we're getting here into mass, mass incarceration. Now, the reason why this is the, the part two to smoke sesh is because the war on drugs was a direct engine to fuel mass incarceration. The war on drugs was a direct engine to exacerbate the conditions which essentially mirror slavery. It never ended. It never stopped. Do you realize that these privately owned prisons, they have contracts with the states that they're in. And a lot of these contracts, I think 65% of privately owned prisons, they have a contract which stipulates they have to be at least 80% populated because if they're not, then the state has to pay for the beds that are left vacant in the privately owned prisons. So then if that's the case, you have to have laws that are going to facilitate incarceration because the state, via the taxpayer, does not want to have to pay this privately owned prison for vacant beds. So tell me where's the ending of slavery here? Tell me, tell me where does it end? Okay, yeah, uh, you don't have issues like Sol Solomon up north or you don't have issues like what went down with uh, with Henry uh, 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 Box Brown or the Dred Scott case. I get all of that, right? You know, we don't have, <laughs> we don't technically, we don't have slave patrols anymore. Technically, we don't have slave patrols. I understand all of that. But in its very essence, in the fact that a human being can be used as capital, their labor, their intellectual labor can be used as capital for these uh, corporations or early insurance companies or early uh, corporations that made money off of the railroad railroads. When did it end? It didn't. It's still here. We're still suffering from it. It's still happening right now. 
is still here. So if a state knows and they have privately owned prisons in that particular state and a state knows that if this particular prison does not have an occupancy of this level, then we have to foot the bill for the vacant beds. You don't think that there's some sort of relationship here between these prisons and the politicians that's, that's mutually beneficial and both sides are making money? It is. Listen, this is no secret here. Like I said, you can read the new Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. You can look at the zero tolerance policy, which also facilitated incarceration uh, around school zones that also facilitated incarceration rates amongst young black people. A black person is 3.8 more times likely to be arrested for a petty marijuana offense than a non-black person. This is just the truth. This is just law. I mean, facts, excuse me. So why would that even be? Why would it be that if you have a, a, a black person and a non-black person, let's say both of them have uh, 2.8 grams of marijuana, why is it the, non, the black person is 3.8 times more likely to get arrested? It's because the tyranny of racism never ended. The lucrative nature of slavery never ended, and this the very uh, crux of our wealth still depends very much on involuntary human labor and involuntary human capital. And if we're really as progressive a society that we say we are, we're going to find a way to get rid of this sort of uh, system. Pardon me, I'm preaching it here tonight, man. <laughs> So I wanted, to, I wanted to speak on a few different laws. Now, I had to take a note for this. I normally don't do these. I like to come off the head. But just so that I'm accurate, I want to talk about a few different laws that exacerbated mass incarceration, especially amongst black people in this country. So we have 1984. We have the Comprehensive Crime Control and Safe Streets Act, which eliminated parole in federal prisons. We have the 1986 Anti-Drug uh, Anti Abuse Act, which established mandatory minimum sentences. These two laws, what they did is that they flooded the prison system with people, specifically black people. And so if you look at uh, incarceration rates in this country, uh, black, black people make up um, 85%. Black people make up 85% of the prison population in the United States. These are two laws. You have the 1994 Violent Crime and Control and Self Safe Streets Act, which exacerbated it even more, even further. The war on drugs, you have to really look at. So you do have several people to look at. You have uh, uh, you have like the early 1930s. And like I mentioned in the last episode, uh, not the last episode, but episode 68, Smoke Sesh, um, Pardon me. In smoke sash, you had, whew, yeah, it's just the truth. So these laws exacerbated that. And like I said in the previous, uh, in smoke sash, I talked about the marijuana tax, I believe, of uh, 1937. So we can go all the way back there. But it was really Richard Nixon that exacerbated this war on drugs. 
Um, one, because in the 60s, you had the, the movement with a lot of the hippies and psychedelics and all of this stuff. <clears throat> but also, um, a lot of black people uh, use marijuana. And uh, Richard Nixon was a fervent racist. And so uh, this uh, also this attack, this war on drugs, this um, assault, if you will, on people that use certain substances, it also was kind of an indirect way to lock up and incarcerate many people in the black community. And so uh, when you look at that, it's, it's a fact that you had elected officials that, that had their hands. It all goes to money. It all goes to the capital. And so you have to, you have to always recognize that particular aspect of it. Um, and, and so what I want to do is with smoke with with the secondhand smoke that I'm giving you guys tonight, what I want to do is I, I want to take a, a brief period and I also want to talk about a little bit more in detail. I want to talk about other plant medicines um, as well. So I spoke a little bit about uh, psilocybin, but I want to get into it a little bit more. So as you all know, I don't know if you know, but there are over 180 species of psilocybin mushrooms. Now, I know I jumped from, from mass incarceration to this, and you're like, where are you going? But John Hop, I think John Hopkins University, they, ha they had an article um, last year, and it talked about how people that suffer from PTSD, uh, uh, depression, when they had a small dose of psilocybin, it actually was able to alter perspective it was actually uh, able to, to lessen uh, PTSD. It was actually able to help with um, issues of anxiety. And as you see, uh, certain shamans and other uh, non-Western cultures who use some of these psychoactive substances have, have spoke about the spiritual and mental benefits of use, you know, uses of things like psilocybin mushrooms, of uses of things like uh, uh, dimethyltryptamine, peyote, masculine, uh, 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 ayahuasca, you know, these are uh, plant substances that have been used um, throughout the ancient world. And the Aztecs actually had um, a substance called Tionanato, uh, and it meant flesh of the gods. And what people speculate is that it actually may have been a form of a psychedelic mushroom, most likely psilocybin mushrooms that the Aztecs use for uh, religious purposes, um, for spiritual purposes as well. And we see that with certain groups like the Hopi uh, here in the United States. And I also want to talk about the fact that psychedelics, um, and you talk about a war on drugs, ironically enough, certain psychedelics have actually been shown and proven to help against drug addiction. So for example, and Gabon in Africa, and Gabon is a country in Africa, for those of you that don't know, Gabon, they have a psychedelic, a plant called uh, Ibogaine or uh, Iboga. Um, excuse me, it's called Iboga, but people call it uh, Ibogaine. And Iboga has been shown to stop relapse of heroin addicts at, at a rate of about 70%. So Iboga has been shown in different studies that it can help or prevent relapse to heroin addiction at a rate of about 70%. Uh, also, uh, people that have gone to Peru and participated in the ayahuasca ceremonies who struggle with uh, hard drug addiction or even cigarette addiction, they talked about going through this ayahuasca, this purging ceremony, and they come out of it with no 
urge to continue to use the particular substance that they were addicted to as well. And so, you know, you see under these different political administrations, and like I said in the last episode, it's not just a politician. There's a symbiotic, interdependent, uh, uh, synergistic relationship between politicians and the prison industrial complex that benefits from uh, uh, these substances being made illegal. And they're not made illegal because they care about your health or they care about your sanity. They're made illegal because it all goes back to profit. Uh, it goes back to big pharma. So for example, if I know that, um, and once again, I'm not a medical expert. And like I say, even the experts, they're still studying these things a lot more. So uh, take certain, take some of the things I'm saying with a grain of salt. And also I encourage you to do your own research and also please listen to the medical experts. And if you have issues with uh, mental health, depression, anxiety, please consult um, a, a mental health expert and your physician and let them guide you properly. Um, I'm not a medical expert, so I'm not directing you on what to do. I'm just saying that from my research, this is some of the information that I've encountered. So with some of the information I've encountered, it's been shown in, in certain cases that these substances, like I said, the psilocybin mushrooms, DMT or dimethyltryptamine, um, uh, peyote, can help with certain issues of the mind and actually may even reset perspective, uh, alter consciousness permanently for the better. So you, we have to look at that. And the fact that you have uh, politicians and, and, and corporations that want to tell you otherwise is for profit, is to keep money in their pockets because if I can go and take a plant that can cure me of my anxiety, if I can go and take a plant that can end my depression, if I can go and take a plant that can help change my perspective and, and be some sort of uh, mental catharsis in my daily fight with my anxiety and depression, why am I going to go to Big Pharma? I don't need them. And they don't want these plants legalized because it may make them fall into obsolence. People don't want to go and drug themselves anymore. And once again, like I said, I'm not a medical expert. And also, let me put that out there, there are a lot of people that have benefited greatly from antidepressants as well. I'm not a cut. One thing you're never going to get on No Truths Barred is just cut and dry. Uh, I always try to have a nuanced look. And so there have been people that have benefited greatly from being on antidepressants. And this is why I said consult your doctor, because your your neurochemistry is, is something that I don't know about. So you have to make, make sure you consult your physician. I just want to put this out there to make sure that we, we have a holistic view of these various arguments that, you know, a lot of people put forth and really don't have the information uh, to really justify, you know. And that goes into the smoke sesh. That goes into cannabis being illegal. And, you know, now, you know, uh, there's uh, CBD oils. People use CBD oil for mus muscular skeletal pain. Uh, people have been prescribed um, additional cannabis. So, for example, Montel Williams, you know, he became a huge advocate of cannabis because he was prescribed cannabis to help with his MS back in the day. And I think he still uses it. There are people that have uh, certain neurological disorders, such as Parkinson's disease, that use cannabis to help alleviate their condition as well. Uh, you have people that suffer from epilepsy that use CBD oil. And so, unlike alcohol and unlike tobacco, 
Um, and it's funny enough, the Virginia colony was like a huge uh, engine for tobacco going into Europe. And actually, uh, King James II actually was very, he was anti-tobacco. He actually, I think he actually put out like a little pamphlet or a book actually speaking out about the dangers of tobacco. But um, so, you know, unlike tobacco and alcohol, these plants, they don't just have recreational purposes. They have purposes that relate to medicine. They have purposes that relate to mental health. And those who seek to monopolize uh, the mental health field or the, or, the, or the medicine field is kind of antagonistic to their profit. And so the negative propaganda has to be spewed at you. The negative propaganda has to be perpetuated because they fear their pockets getting hurt, not your well-being. That's what they fear. They fear your pockets getting hurt, not necessarily uh, your well-being. And so to tie into the war on drugs, when we look at the fact that the cannabis industry has become a multi-billion dollar industry and you have places like uh, Colorado, who I think Colorado was the first to leak the first state or, or excuse me, I think it was Washington state. Uh, that was the first state to legalize it. Uh, Washington state and Colorado was the first two states to legalize it recreationally. Um, I think it was proposition and look, I can't remember the proposition number, but, uh, California had the medical marijuana back in 96. I think they went ahead and passed, but they didn't legalize it recreationally until later on after Colorado and Washington state. But when you look at the cannabis industry, this is a multi-billion dollar industry. But ironically enough, there is little to no representation of black people in this industry. Now, why is that important? The war on drugs not only allowed for countless uh, black and brown people to be incarcerated at alarming rates. But what it also did, it hurt a lot of those communities. Studies have been shown that uh, uh, children are far more likely to be successful if they're coming from two-parent households, if they have that stability, that financial stability there. And what the, the, the war on drugs did is that it not only incarcerated people, it hurt black families. It hurt people that came out of prison, people that were locked up for years on petty marijuana charges that came out of prison and they have the stigma of being a convict. They have the stigma of, 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 of going to jail, of being a drug addict, a drug user, and they couldn't get jobs. Therefore, that set a lot of people behind. And what it started, uh, what it also abetted in was huge spikes in recidivism where people would leave jail but come back because there are no options there. This war on drugs crippled an entire generation of people. So now that we see that cannabis is legalized, how does restitution begin to happen? How do we as a country are okay with uh, so many people coming into the cannabis industry and not only coming into the cannabis industry, but making millions of dollars when that very same plant that was stigmatized and demonized for decades was the source of incarceration and wealth depletion for entire black and brown communities for decades. There has to be some restitution within the cannabis industry. There has to be a way to facilitate um, people that were adversely affected by cannabis laws being able to get into those particular industries and not only just get in there, but have a way to make money from it. 
Because it's truly not fair as a country if we're going to promote cannabis use and it's cool now and it's chic and you can have cannabis cafes, you can have cannabis this, cannabis that, when so many people were arrested for it. So, you know, we have to have those conversations and there are like a lot of great grassroots organizations um, in various cities that are talking about um, restitution and not only equality, but equity when it comes to black people getting into the cannabis industry since we've been so adversely affected by it. And so I want to end this podcast really quick um, on a note, speaking about the cannabis industry and black people being affected. I kind of want to talk about, um, and I'm kind of going off topic, but it is still somewhat relevant. I want to talk about the enmity between black men and black women really quick. So I want to talk about the enmity between black men and, and black women. Uh, every time I'm on social media, and this really bothers me, every time I'm on social media, I always see a post with a black woman talking about how black men are sexist, how black men are misogynistic. And, and, and by and large, there are a lot of black men that are sexist, and there are a lot of black men that are, that are misogynistic. I hear that I've, I've seen posts from black women where they talk about, you know, getting a white man or a non-black man as a step up. It's better. And I do not like that because I feel that sort of perspective is immature and short-sighted. But black men, let me get on you too. I see posts with black men where they say black women have too much attitude. Black women don't know how to be submissive. Uh, a white woman or anybody that's any woman that's non-black is preferable to a black woman. And I'm not a fan of that because that's idiotic, it's asinine, and you're spewing generalizations. My problem with this is that once again, I don't promote any sort of race superiority. That's not what I do here. But what I do want to point out are problems. And this is a huge problem. If we're already, if you're talking about a black family unit that's predicated on a nuclear family, if you're talking about a black family unit, and the fact that really families is how you, a family really is how you amass wealth, you're more likely to amass wealth if you have you know, a wife and children, you have a whole unit versus somebody that's just by themselves. So if we know that our relationships, our families are already in a fragmented state, it would behoove us to not perpetuate these caustic views of one another. And do we have problems? Damn it, yes, we do. Are there issues with black men? Damn it, yes. Are there issues with black women? Damn it, yes. But there is a problem there, though. There's a problem of possibly the way that we were reared, the, the misinformation and the miseducation that our parents received was passed on to us and their parents received was passed on to them. And so anytime I see a post on Instagram or Twitter where it's a black man tearing down black women or is a black woman tearing down black men, I cannot support it under any circumstances. Because these things are coming from places that is built upon rhetoric that we were taught to think about one another. We were taught to dislike each other. And many other groups of people, they seem to not have this enmity between each other. 
Now, I'm not saying that we should not have discussions about our issues. But what we should not do is become racist against each other. Because when I hear that, that's what it sounds like. It sounds like black people who are racist against other black people. We can cap, we can critique, we can even castigate, we can bring up the, 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 the inequities, we can bring up the shortcomings, but we do not have to do that uh, uh, while perpetuating uh, 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 just hatred amongst each other. That's the best way I can put it. And I want to do an episode where I have some some black women on and some black men on, and we have this conversation because this conversation needs to be had because we have to think about the generation after us. We have to think about the children that's coming after us. What type of conditions will they be able to live in? What type of wealth are we leaving behind for them? What type of healthy knowledge and love and family are we going to have for them? And as it looks right now, it's not a whole lot. We have slavery. We had uh, uh, Jim Crow, the new Jim Crow, mass uh, mass incarceration, uh, the, 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 the hunting down, the lynching of black men and women. Since, the, since 1982, the incarceration rate of black women has gone up by 700%. It's a little bit higher for black men. Prior to the 80s, in order for America's incarceration rate to go back to the way it was in the 1970s, three out of every four prisoners in this country would have to be released. The incarceration rate in this country is insane. And the byproduct of that is a fragmented black family structure that's hanging on by a thread. And us knowing and seeing this, we still want to perpetuate this hatred and dislike amongst each other. And it has to stop. So look, this has been... uh, Episode 70. This has been the second hand, the second hand smoke. I want to thank you guys for tuning in. And make sure you follow me on Instagram at Hoy H O Y T underscore Kuwaku, K W A K U underscore Timmons, that's T I M M O N S. Also, make sure you follow my other patrons, the underscore No Truth Bar podcast. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. And once again, thank you for the support. Thank you for tuning in. And I'll catch you guys next time. Peace. You just finished episode 70 of No Truce Bard, The Second Hand. Thank you for listening to this episode. Make sure you subscribe to the YouTube channel, which is No Truce Bard Podcast. Make sure you follow me on Instagram. And once again, thank you for listening to this episode. Take care, much love, and peace.